Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. Just a quick reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. For this episode, we have two guests, SI senior writer Chris Ballard, who wrote a terrific new magazine story on Jurgen Klinsmann, and Ian Eyre, the former Liverpool CEO who has just been named the CEO of Nashville's MLS team. I think you'll enjoy these. Onward! Joining me now is Sports Illustrated senior writer Chris Ballard. Chris recently wrote a soccer story for the magazine on Jurgen Klinsmann, and it's a fantastic read that I suggest you check out. Chris, thanks for joining me. Yeah, pleasure to be on. Yeah, lots to talk about here. Really love the story. Um, and, you know, there's not a lot that we've heard from Jurgen Klinsmann since he was let go as the U.S. soccer, uh, U.S. men's national team coach in late 2016. Um, how did this story come together? This was our soccer editor, or one of them, uh, Adam Dewerson, approached me and thought, maybe we get uh, Klinsman to talk. He's coming up in the World Cup. Maybe he's ready. He did something with the L.A. Times briefly with Kevin Baxter in January. He spoke at uh, one of these coaches' conferences. It turns out Jurgen loves coaches' conferences. He's all in on that. Uh, <laughs> and so those are basically his two public or semi-public appearances. And so Adam reached out and said, essentially, uh, you know, what do you think about trying to get Jurgen? My first response was, uh, well, don't you want Grant Wall to do that? <laughs> I mean, that's a nice response, and thank you. Uh, I, I should probably be the one to explain. Um, I think, you know, the first reason why I didn't write this story and why Brian Strauss, our other full-time soccer writer, didn't write this story uh, had to do with we had had a lot of interactions with Klinsman over the years when he was the U.S. coach. Um, and as with other people in the soccer media, like Alexi Lalas or Kyle Martino, um, there were stretches when Klinsman would not speak to us one-on-one. Uh, Brian wrote a, a pretty big expose on uh, Klinsman's U.S. team back in 2013 when he was with the Sporting News. Um, you know, I'd written a lot on Klinsman over the years. I feel like we had been very straight up in our coverage, very fair. Uh, Jurgen didn't always feel that way, and for a guy who... Uh, has had to have a very thick skin in his career as a player. Uh, I was a little surprised that he didn't seem to have a very thick skin as a coach. Uh, but nobody's obligated to speak to somebody one-on-one. It just seemed like a better situation uh, for you to go in, not having had previous interactions with Klinsman. And, and that sounds out like that's uh, it turned out well. Yeah, you know, I'm always interested in people like Klinsman um, and I usually have mainly MBA as far as a lot of the long-form stuff I've done, but uh, leaders who take chances, and I, I only really knew about Jurgen from the relative outside, not having covered a lot of soccer, but uh, as a longtime U.S. soccer fan, and so I was sort of seeing it from that perspective, and I'd always found him fascinating. I didn't quite understand everything he did, but parts of what he did always seemed interesting, so I, I sort of approached him with the very open-ended <coughs> concept of, I just want to know how your brain works. Uh, I don't necessarily want to make this a story that's all about U.S. soccer. Uh, I'd like to do sort of a deeper profile of you. Uh, and this was my original pitch. Um, and Jurgen came back to me via email with, uh, well, what are your intentions? <laughs> um, 
and, and which I, I came to understand as the story went along that this was very much in keeping with him. Mm-hmm. He's seen this as a transactional process with the media. Um, and I told him I didn't have any as of then. My general process with stories is to go spend time with someone and let the story develop and try to go in with as few preconceptions as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in this case, I think that's one of the advantages that I had was that I could send him these stories I'd written before about people that were pretty in-depth and clearly not like a... Uh, you know, a 10-minute interview blown up to a larger scale. Uh, and then I didn't have a history in the soccer community, so he could, in essence, try to explain to me his entire vision. Um, and then, of course, you know, his, his hope in that case is that I will just put it right out there uh, with, with no uh, shading on either side. Right. And, I mean, that's not necessarily how you work. Uh, you did talk to other people for this story. Who were those folks again? Yeah, so Tab Ramos... Um, and then I talked to Galati, uh, and then Michael Bradley declined, uh, and then a fair number of people behind the scenes like yourself and, and Strauss, and just to get soccer context, people who understood the game. Okay. And how many times did you meet up with Klinsman? Went down there first, and it was interesting. I essentially, you know, this is a little sort of journalism <laughs> note, but, uh, he was, he was definitely reticent to do anything or meet up. Um, and then I finally emailed him, you know, like maybe a month after our first contact and said, hey, I happen to be in Southern California next week. Uh, maybe we could just grab coffee and talk off the record. And, of course, I didn't happen to be in Southern California, but I felt like it would take the pressure off him uh, to make it seem like I'm coming down. And he said, yeah, so I headed down, and uh, we did just like two hours uh, almost all of it off the record conversation, just getting a sense of it. And then even at the end of that, I had no idea if he wanted to do the story or not. It was, it was sort of a bizarre guy. Usually you go through a media rep or an agent or a handler or a publicist, and Jurgen was just doing this all himself. He did that as a player, apparently. He negotiated his own contract. Uh, so it made it both, uh, like, access was you're plugging right in, like you're going right into the USB port there. At the same time, like he would, it might be a week before he responded to an email, and it might be unclear exactly what the, what he was trying to tell you. Uh, so then I once again I waited, and I eventually sort of gave up on it. I repitched a story after our first conversation of, well, here's sort of what I'd need from you. I want to spend a day together. I'd want to see you in these settings, have this conversation, etc. And then eventually uh, he responded about a week after that email and said, yeah. So I flew back down and spent a day with him, um, starting out this complex he's very proud of that he's been helping design silver lakes which is it is pretty impressive it's about 50 miles um east of la 24 soccer fields just like beautifully done and uh, where soccer is the primary thing it's not like you've got a complex and there's baseball and football and yeah we throw the soccer fields there right uh it's all soccer and so i think that's his vision is like this is what you know look this is what we would have overseas this is what you guys need in america Okay. Um, and so what else did you do with him? Because obviously when you do a magazine profile on somebody, you're trying to do more than just sit in a room and do a 30-minute interview and bam, you're done. Like, So did you get some sort of hangout time with him as well? Yeah. See, that's always the struggle uh, with a lot of these stories is that it becomes harder and harder to do. Um, in this day and age, there's, you know, the time allotted is often shorter. And so with Jurgen, I think his vision of the day was we're going to meet at Silver Lakes and talk for an hour. 
mm-hmm. and that would be it. Um, and my vision of the day was, as you can imagine, different. Uh, so in that situation, you're hoping just to create a rapport. And so what I did is I said, hey, well, before we talk, let's just take a tour of the place. Mm-hmm. And then so he was happy to do that with his partner, R.J. Brandis. They gave me a tour, and that took a while. Uh, and then we ended up talking, and then he was going to head back to Newport Beach, and I told him I just happened to be staying in Newport <laughs> Beach that night. <laughs> uh, and so that, and then we had lunch, and that led to him driving me home, which from interviewing is always great because you've got someone in a car and it's just a natural time for people to, to release a little bit. In this case, it's going to be almost an hour, especially if we hit traffic. So we ended up being together from like 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Uh, and that's when you really start getting a sense of someone outside of the, the, the you know, talking to a tape recorder stuff. The talking to the tape recorder is probably an hour out of that, and the rest of it was getting a vision. But he was reluctant, very much. He's not the kind of guy who's going to say, hey, come to my house. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, or let's go do this. Some athletes, coaches are all about that. Hey, I'm going to show you my life. Let's go do this, et cetera. It sounds like even when he was a player, he always drew a really hard line, um, which is interesting because he's, you, you, you would look at him and think, okay, this guy has a really high opinion of his ideas. He might want to sort of be a narcissist and show off in these other ways, but he's not like that about his family at all. Right. No, he certainly does. Uh, at least in my experience over the years, have a real sense of privacy. So you were at his house? No, no, oh, I didn't okay. that. But, but Jurgen was like, oh, no, no, I need to go take care of the girls, you know, because <laughs> he's, he, you know, his, his daughter is doing essentially, um, it's, it's interesting, it's like homeschooling, but a one-on-one schooling that, so she can pursue this high-level equestrian dream. Uh, oh. So she, she goes and does schooling three days a week, and then he takes her to the horse shows, and he really is highly involved as a father, both in her and then in, in his son, Jonathan, who's obviously now playing over in Germany, but when he was at Cal, he was coming up here. I live in Berkeley. He was up here, uh, and he's been going over to see Jonathan playing various tournaments. Okay. Um, and one detail I loved from your story was that Klinsman's license plate has a personalized plate that says fly heli. He's obviously a licensed helicopter pilot. Did, did you try to get him to take you up in the helicopter? I did. I did. And I think, you know, the way the story worked, uh, we did that, that second interview and I think we developed a certain level of understanding and trust about it. And, you know, we had a fair number of off the record conversations, but I also explained to Jurgen that, you know, he would have to decide to come on the record with that stuff. So I think he sort of, he, he sort of trusted me to a certain level. Uh, and normally what we do is I probably would have spent more time with him. But in this case, we wanted to turn the story around pretty quickly mm-hmm. to get it out prior to the World Cup lead-up. So it was essentially like I came back Tuesday and filed the story within three days. But normally the next step would have been, yeah, go fly in the helicopter, <laughs> see that level of it, and then do more reporting around him. Uh, go talk to a lot more former players, et cetera. And then your story gets out into that four, 5,000 word range and really becomes more of a portrait. Right. Um, in terms of stories on Jurgen Klinsmann and, and uh, you know, what happened, I guess, with the U.S. World Cup qualifying effort, I, was, I found interesting that he uh, said to you that he didn't have any regrets um, at all about what he had done. Um, did that surprise you? You know, it, it, it doesn't now, having spent some time with him. It did before. 
Mm-hmm. I think that's the, the biggest surprise to me going in relatively, you know, relatively blank slate on this is one of the things I've seen. I've spent a lot of time around Steve Kerr. I think what makes Steve Kerr so effective beyond is, you know, he's an amazing communicator and et cetera, um, is his humility. Uh, and he's got this, this huge um, drive not for the focus to be on him and for him not to get the credit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so if you were to ask, for example, Steve Kerr, what mistakes did you make? Um, he would have thought about them, and he would list them off, and he would credit to other people, and he would say, well, you know, my assistant coach, Ron Adams, deserves the credit for this, and really that was all Alvin Gentry, and he, you know, he would, he would parcel that around. And so I expected that from Jurgen, um, and so he would just dance around that question again and again, sort of like a, I was like, well, you know, if you, what, I, I'd phrase it differently. What lessons did you learn from things you did that, that maybe you do differently this time? Uh, you know, try it. And he just, he was like, no, this is, the plan was good. Certainly there were certain games that you look back on and you would do something here or there, but he wouldn't specify any of that. So to me that was, you know, and maybe that's a hardened response now that he was fired and he sort of dug in his heels, I don't know. Uh, but I found that to be revealing in a way that often the best coaches and leaders will really dissect why things happen if you didn't get the optimal outcome and then process that and apply it going forward, take the momentum with them, right? And I'm not sure he's, not, he's at least not publicly doing that. Maybe he's doing it internally. That's, that's very much possible. But not to even have like one or two things that you'd say, okay, X, Y, and Z. Yeah, I mean, like my sense from covering basketball, but also just following sports over the years, uh, in addition to soccer, but soccer both in the U.S. and abroad, is I think with American sports coaches, it's more often you hear, uh, this was my fault, Um, I'll take the blame for this, than you see with European soccer coaches, because I've never seen Jose Mourinho uh, take the blame for anything and, and... uh, you know, sometimes they may not even believe that in U.S. sports, but I, I think of Roy Williams at North Carolina used to do this. This one's on me, and it would take the blame yeah. off his players, whether he actually thought that or not. Um, and I, I wondered if maybe Klinsman just is, in that sense, a more European traditionalist. Um, but in terms of like his compare, like comparing and contrasting Klinsman with. NBA coaches who you're around quite a bit and not just Steve Kerr, you know, it's a difference, right? Yeah. I mean, a huge difference. Um, but uh, you know, on both sides of it, Jurgen is, uh, he, I was really shocked by how approachable and um, down to earth he is when you mm-hmm. meet him in person. And a lot of times, especially the combination of like, maybe you meet Jeff Van Gundy, who's a very good coach announcer, but never had that player experience. You know, where he was idolized and, and the media and all that. And so he seems down to earth. But often when there's a former player, especially a really good former player at Jurgen's level, who becomes a manager or a coach, especially at a level that Jurgen's at, um, you would expect almost an imperious nature in person. And he doesn't have that at all. He really, he's almost a little bit goofy. Uh, you know, he giggles. Uh, he's, he's friendly. Uh, and so that, to me, it was, uh, it's one of the many sort of uh, contrasts you find with him that you don't often see. Like you wouldn't necessarily get that from most NBA coaches, especially those that had played. Like it's hard to imagine you know, Larry Bird or Michael Jordan being like that and they, you know, when they get to their coaching or management part of their career. Um, so I noticed that. Uh, and I also, I mean, he, he is so inherently German in so many ways 
that there's a the cultural divide as much as he's trying to Americanize himself, and he has in some ways. There are parts of it that are just that's that's who he's going to be, and that certainly sticks out. Okay, I mean, I think you and I discussed this a little bit. Um, and I'm still wondering myself, is there a tell-all to be written at some point about the U.S. soccer failure to qualify for the World Cup? And clearly you found that Michael Bradley did not wish to speak publicly. Uh, We've seen some examples of Jeff Cameron sort of siding a bit with Klinsman, Jermaine Jones siding a bit with Klinsman. Um, Are we going to see a tell-all do you think at some point, and is and is there going to be a point at all when uh, a U.S. player or many U.S. players are willing to speak with their name on it, or is it going to potentially need to be something where they speak without their name on something? Well, I'll preface this by saying you know far better than I do whether <laughs> the reality of that being you know knowing a lot of the the people involved with this. Mm-hmm. But I will say I would love to see it. I, yeah. I, you know, from what I now understand, there's a lot to be told there on one side or the other, um, that uh, for U.S. soccer fans would be enlightening and I think would probably be one of those situations where if you can figure out how this all blew up um, in, in detail, it would help you avoid the mistakes going forward. There's certainly a lot there, and, and uh, having heard some of the contrasting viewpoints and, and sides, I would love to read it. Is, you know, is it something that benefits any of those principal people? That's what I don't know. Mm-hmm. Is there any, you know, arena, it sounds like, you know, he's sort of speaking up some, uh, but who's going to benefit from that tell-all, um, you know, if you're a coach who is in that system and hoping to be a national coach someday, you're not going to come out and say stuff. Uh, it doesn't benefit Jurgen because he's looking for his next job and to move on, and, you know, as he said to me, like, in Germany, you don't spit in your soup. Uh, <laughs> like, it doesn't benefit him to do this publicly. Uh, does it benefit MLS? Probably not. They're trying to grow their product. Uh, you know, Galati's, from what I can tell, is not interested in rehashing it. So, yeah, maybe it would have to be like a player. A player who's retired and is like, I don't care anymore. Uh, I'm going to get out on this, but I don't know. Which, I mean, what's your take on that? Yeah, it's a, it's a question where I, I, the way I think about it now is when, when Brian Strauss wrote his expose for the Sporting News back in 2013, most of the quotes were unnamed. Uh, And I get why that was the case, that it was still a very impressive reporting job because he spoke to a lot of players, a lot of people uh, for that story. And it certainly had an impact. Um, You know, I look at it potentially as uh, it might take multiple reporters to do that story. And those reporters have different relationships with different people, you know, like right now, yeah. it's accurate for me to say your relationship with Jurgen Klinsmann is probably light years better than mine is. And, you know, I certainly covered him uh, the best I possibly could. But the night of the Costa Rica loss, when his final game, when they lost 4 nothing, and it looked like the players quit on him a few days after they'd lost at home to Mexico, I wrote a column saying it was time for Jurgen Klinsmann to go. So... I certainly understand if Jurgen Klinsmann wasn't thrilled about that. Uh, that's perfectly fine. Um, but uh, it's, uh, it's interesting trying to negotiate sort of the, the relationship stuff over the years. And uh, I think this worked out really well in terms of the story that you told. I think Brian has relationships with certain figures 
uh, I have certain relationships with figures. My guess is a story like that might require a few different writers uh, doing it, but I'd certainly be interested in it. Um, and you may just have some p- important people. Like I think Michael Bradley is going to be really hard as a nut to crack. It's it's sort of fundamentally important for him, I think, to not be part of a tell-all um, and not come out publicly criticizing somebody within the team. But other players probably have different opinions. I mean, Alejandro Bedoya is a guy who we saw some quotes last week um, to Doug McIntyre from Yahoo Sports about what went wrong. So, um, you know, as, as you have found over the years in stories that you do, it's often the, the mo- more emotional guys who are the ones that you approach um, or the ones who've spoken out before. Um, so, so we'll see. But I, I think it would make for an interesting story, and, and I know it's something that, like you, I think uh, I think fans would certainly be interested in. Uh, in terms of Klinsman and his future, what uh, what do you see? Well, you know, obviously I'm hearing Klinsman's side of it, uh, but it certainly sounded like he was receiving interest almost immediately and has continued to. One of the things that, was, um, that I found interesting to see in reporting the story was the perspective of how he's seen here in the States, uh, which is very much mixed. Uh, and I think within the, within the hardcore soccer fan community, there's, there's a fair amount of enmity towards him and the media as well. But then uh, internationally, he is still revered. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of, like, so I, I think he's that kind of guy that, you know, worst case scenario, he could just sort of pop to a new culture as, almost as long as he wanted, is the sense I get. Because when you've been that successful as a player, and taken two national teams, uh, you know, overachieved with two national teams, regardless of the rest of the situation, or, you know, Bayern Munich or anything else, those things are going to follow you sort of headliners. So if you go into someplace new, um, you're, you're still going to carry some weight, uh, you know, for at least another 10 or 15 years, is my guess. Um, so, you know, what level will that be? He sounded like he wanted to be a top eight team in the world, national team coach. Um, he shot down uh, the rumors for the Liga MX, and um, but who knows? Uh, he, he was thinking probably after the World Cup he'd make a move. For now, he wants to see his daughter. She's got two years left. Um, finish up, but he would commute like he did for the German national team job. Uh, so he would stay here and commute, which means he doesn't want to go be a club coach somewhere right away, but he might in two years. Uh, and who knows? Like he, he can always be flexible, but it's not like he wants to make this his home base. So I, I really do think he's coming at it from a relative position of having his choice. And I gotta wonder how much the U.S.'s subsequent failure, you know, right after his firing, when Arena takes the coach, when the team on that run, Jurgen suddenly looking really poor in retrospect. But then that collapse. Mm-hmm. It's a weird. It's like a Sam Hinkie thing, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, due to nothing of his own. Uh, making suddenly he looked better again by the end. Uh, it's a weird, must have been a weird thing to go through. Yeah, I can imagine that. I mean, Klinsman, I think, is fairly unique, in my opinion, among soccer coaches in the world in terms of how varying are the opinions of the people in different parts of the world toward him. Um, you know, in England, I was struck by wherever I went after World Cup 2014, they talked in such glowing positive terms about watching Klinsman's U.S. team during that World Cup. And it was 
and even uh, quite a bit more positive spin on things than we saw in the U.S. even. And in the U.S., my sense was, was that the general sports public felt pretty good about what they saw from that U.S. team in terms of actual results and getting out of a really difficult group. Um, whereas more people in the U.S. soccer community would make the point of how did the U.S. team actually play in that World Cup? You know, they had uh, a, a good start against Ghana. Um, they played well against Portugal at times. Uh, and other than that, they were pretty well dominated um, in the tournament. So that, that's a completely different response than the one that we saw in England. And then in Germany, obviously, there's people who feel like with the national team, he was kind of this founding father of the major changes that took place in the early 2000s that set the table eventually for Germany to win the 2014 World Cup. And yet there are others who saw his his pretty short tenure at Bayern Munich in 08-09 as a disaster. And they point out Philipp Lahm just totally called him out as being essentially a fraud. So, I mean, that to me is is totally fascinating that a lot of really respected people have very different opinions of Jurgen Klinsmann. It does make me wonder if he's going to work potentially in England at some point, maybe as a national team coach, maybe in some other capacity, because there are some fond memories, I think, of his time at Tottenham Hotspur as a player. Um, but if, a t if he's talking about coaching, wanting to coach for a top eight national team, maybe England falls in that group. But I don't know of too many others that I'm sure would hire him at this point. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I mean, he's going to be doing... Um, uh, UK television work during the World Cup, and that maybe could be an indicator of where he wants to, you know, be have his voice heard. We see that in other sports, right? In terms of um, former coaches doing TV work and where they decide to do stuff. But um, he didn't mention any specifics on England as a possible destination for him at some point. No, um, you know, um, he did speak highly, I don't know if this was necessarily related to where he'd want to coach, but he did speak highly of Mexico multiple times, I mm -hmm. think partly because he feels that what they've done with their national team is what the U.S. should have done, getting a lot of players over to play in top European leagues. Mm -hmm. um, but he was very high on Mexico going into the World Cup. He's like, that's my advice to Germany is watch out for Mexico in that first game. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, sort of, he mentioned working on his Spanish um, and, which he's been doing for a while, but has been ramping up, and also going down and seeing uh, Club Tijuana. So I don't know, like that's he spoke highly of Mexico repeatedly, and uh, otherwise didn't seem as if he had necessarily put a lot of thought into a specific target. But I think what he wanted to do, uh, at least via the interview with me, obviously was sort of project to the world that he was in a place where he was ready to do this again, and he had these big ideas. And there's one thing I heard, even from the people who didn't like Jurgen, who I spoke with, they did like his big ideas. Often the, the problem was like the disconnect between the big ideas and, you know, the day-to-day -day hard work of managing people and implementing and, you know, that part of it, like the, the human side of it. But they did like his big ideas. So maybe that's what he's hoping is that someplace says, oh, we like, you know, he transformed Germany, or they're going to give him credit for transforming the U.S. in some way. Let's get him in for the big ideas. And ideally, what you do is you pair him with 
you know, the, the people who do the, the, the human side of it, and mm-hmm. that maybe that would be more effective. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, I have always thought that Jurgen is one of the nicer guys I've run into in the soccer world. He's always been that way, even when he wasn't speaking to me one-on-one. Uh, it's just that he didn't seem to want to have many uh, communication challenges or have uncomfortable conversations when something was going wrong, and so he just wouldn't communicate that. Um, but I can certainly see him going to Mexico as their national team coach. I don't know if he considers Mexico a top eight national team, but, um, you know, it's, uh, I, I don't think that Juan Carlos Osorio will remain Mexico coach after the World Cup. In fact, I think he has a shot to become the U.S. coach. And I think it would be amusing to see basically those guys switch places. Switching, yeah. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of respect for Klinsman in Mexico. For so long, he had never lost to Mexico as a player or as a coach. Uh, and I think that was the case uh, until probably the CONCACAF Cup in the, in the Rose Bowl when Mexico finally beat the U.S. with Klinsman and then obviously in Columbus the last time. But... Uh, yeah, I, I, I would encourage people to read your story, obviously, your new one. I would encourage them to go into the SI vault and read a story on Klinsman that Alex Wolf, Alexander Wolf, wrote way back in 1994 when he was a player with Germany because uh, you got a real sense from that story uh, that Klinsman was going to go to the U.S. someday, either to live or to work or both. And uh, he's certainly one of the, the all-time interesting guys in the soccer world. So, Chris Ballard. I'd also add yeah, in, go ahead. Um, like, if you read Sam Borden's story in the New York Times Magazine from mm-hmm. 2014, uh, that, was, that was fascinating to me to see. It was written at, he got good access to Klinsman. Uh, it was written at a time when the U.S. team was on the rise. There was already, he'd already cut out Donovan, so there was that element. Um, and it was a portrait of sort of Klinsman in flux, I would say, mm-hmm. right, you know, before the fall, because right before the 2014 World Cup. So he was writing high, certainly, but hadn't had the success of the World Cup yet, uh, and I thought Borden did a really good job there. So you could sort of framework it, because Wolf's story is great. You know, it's, like, it's, a, it's a lot of things you see that you know, continue through this lifelong learner, this sort of feeling of deficit because he never got his college education and trying to make up for it by having life experiences uh, and who he was as a player, and then you can see this, some of that carrying over into his uh, coaching career. Well, great stuff, Chris. Thanks so much for joining the podcast. Hey, thanks, Grant. Big thanks to Chris Ballard for joining me. Now we move on to new MLS Nashville CEO, Ian Ayer. Joining me now is Ian Ayer. He's best known as the former CEO of Liverpool, where he won the Premier League CEO of the Year Award in 2016. This week, he was announced as the CEO of the new Nashville MLS team, expected to start play in 2020. Ian, congratulations, and thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Uh, we've talked before uh, when you were uh, at Liverpool. In those days, I probably wouldn't have expected you would go to Nashville eventually, but uh, it's really exciting to have you be part of MLS. Uh, I guess just first off, what's the story of how this Nashville job came together for you? Well, I guess, it, it, I mean, I, I was approached by the search agency that um, John Ingram had, had hired to kind of look for the position and um you know if i look at mls over the last five years and the growth of the league um a combination of that the excitement of 
um, you know, the the chance really to build a whole team from the ground up, um, and you know, just um, just seems like a great combination, great city, great people, great team, great owners. So um, yeah, it all came together quite quickly over two or three months, and um, I'm really happy to be chosen, and really happy to, and you know, keen to get started. In what ways is this Nashville team going to be special, in your opinion? Well, I think you know if you if you're going to assemble a team to compete in this league, uh, for me, there's two key or two or three key things. One is that I think in you know the raw ingredients for any soccer team have to be you know good ownership, good people, um, you know, good team that you assemble, and and you have to have great support. You know, I know that firsthand from being. A, the CEO of Liverpool, and be a, a Liverpool soccer fan my whole life. So, um, you know, if you can put those right ingredients together, I think you can achieve amazing things. And you know, I was very fortunate in the sort of three or four month process here to get to see some of the local sports teams play and see the passion that the Nashvilleians have for their sports teams, but but also the passion they have for their city. And I think if you get all of those individual parts, you're in a really good place. And then. You know, I hope that my own experience, um, you know, we can build something really incredible. And and as I said to somebody yesterday, you know, this is about uh, building something to not just to take part, but, you know, to challenge and win and and go the whole whole hog. So, um, yeah, very exciting. What is it about MLS and soccer in America that you find intriguing? Well, I think I think the trajectory it's been on more than anything, you know, I, as I said, you know, look back. 10 years, five years, you know, you can see uh, this thing coming out of the ground originally and then and then just continuing to, you know, year on year, bigger crowds, bigger revenue, better quality of on-field talent, you know, attracting more and more talent, but, you know, developing talent domestically, but also attracting t- talent from international markets. And I think that all speaks for itself, you know, whether it's good coaches or, or good players or, you know, everybody's seen the value of the league. I think they've done an incredible job with it. And um, so, to, as I said before, to get the chance to A, be a part of that and B, to build an entire team is, is you know, too good to turn down for, for anyone, um, you know, who's, who's a, an executive in this industry. You know, maybe it's partly to do with Nashville's location, not too far away from Atlanta and, and Atlanta, being a recent addition to this league and being so extremely successful in terms of how things have gone there. Um, the people might make some comparisons. Also, uh, Darren Eels came in at Atlanta and uh, came in from the Premier League. Uh, did you talk to Darren at all to before you took this job to get an idea of MLS? I, d- I didn't, but only out of confidentiality. But I know Darren well, and um, you know we have some good history of competing against each other and you know, when he was at Tottenham and um, I think we probably had the better of them over the period. So <laughs> look forward to some more of that. And, um, you know, I think, look, we, I think Darren and the people at Atlanta have done a fantastic job. Um, I don't think we will compare ourselves to anyone. You know, we'll be our own team with our own objectives and our own style and everything else. But um, we're very much looking forward to catching up with Darren and you know, hearing how it's all worked for him. And, um, you know, I, d- I did see him about six or seven months ago and he was hugely, you know, enthused by what he'd been doing. So, uh, yeah, so I look look forward to reconnecting with him. Nice. Um, I think so- soccer fans in Nashville, one of their first questions is going to be, what sort of a head coach are you looking to hire? 
Yeah, I think it's too early to answer that question. I think, you know, this is kind of day one. Um, so, uh, you know, there's all sorts of other things to get through. But I think, you know, the, what we'll do is over a you know reasonably short period of time, we'll start to develop you know, the playing style we expect to look at the, you know, the type of football we want to play, look at the budgets and, and then we'll set our stall out accordingly. And I think the coach will come through that process. You know, once we define the type of uh, style and type of players we want to have and everything else, then obviously the coach will be, you know, needs to fit within that. And, um, but that again, that's just an, another exciting opportunity. You know, often you come, you come to, uh, you come to a club and you inherit something, and and you have to kind of remould that. But we're you know we're building from zero here, so so very exciting, and you know, um, a great opportunity to kind of um, look at the whole market and and see what the opportunities are for Nashville. Now, will there be a technical director hired as well? I'm not sure what kind of structure you plan on having there. Yeah, so we're we're already on with. Um, I think the next, you know, piece of news we will have um, will come, you know, in a reasonably short period of time. I hope is to find a good general manager or technical director to work alongside me. Um, I think that's important. You know, as much as we're still some way from kicking our first ball um, in competition, we we will need very quickly to start work on, you know, analysis and scouting and and building up you know, the, the sort of information we need to make the right selection for players. So so that that for me is a priority and it's something I've been involved in in the lead up to today's announcement. Uh, you know, I've been kind of kept in the loop on on that and, um, and look forward to meeting some of the potential candidates in the coming weeks. Yeah, is there, a, is there like a general timeline on a technical director hire or when you would like to hire a coach? Uh, for me, as soon as possible, because you know, like myself, there's there's a lot to do. You know, it's a in in real terms, it's a relatively short period of time to assemble what we need, and you know, the more time we have, the better equipped we'll be. So, you know, it's like we we won't rush it. We have to get the right person uh, with the right credentials, but um, but yeah, as soon as possible. From a major player signing perspective, there are sort of two trends in MLS lately. There's the trend of signing young emerging stars, usually from South America, like we've seen Atlanta and LAFC do. Then there's this trend of signing big name European players, often in their 30s, like we've seen several clubs do. Uh, Wayne Rooney's the latest name we've seen is potentially heading to DC United. Uh, What's your sense of what Nashville's strategy will be? I think our strategy will be, you know, I I don't think it falls into either category particularly. I think our strategy will be to extract the most value on the field that we can from the budget that we we set. You know, I think um, one thing's for certain is that anybody who comes here will need to be, you know, hungry and, you know, committed to playing, you know, for Nashville. I think that's really important. I think there's there's a mixed mixed bag of, of successes and failures in players coming in from overseas. And I think, you know, we'll look at that long and harder. But, and that's no different in, in reality to the way we recruited at Liverpool. It, was, it wasn't always about who cost the most or was the biggest or the best. It, you know, it was about finding really good value and, and assembling a team that worked well together. And um, I don't see it being any different. Obviously, um, for, you know, for obvious reasons, the, the scale and the, and the value and and expenditure are different, but but that doesn't change the philosophy at all. So, I think it will be a mix of of all of those things. And but as I say, everybody who pulls on the Nashville shirt 
at the appropriate time will need to be you know completely committed to our team and and delivering results I guess one thing I was going to ask you, considering you're sort of starting from the ground up, do we know what the name of your club is going to be? Uh, that's still work in progress yet. So, um, <laughs> so let's see. Um, but you know, we have we have some ideas around that, and um, but you know, it, I think more importantly will be you know building a culture and a and a way that fits with Nashville and the people of Nashville and the fans, uh, the soccer fans in this community. So. So we'll we'll do some work on that over the, the coming weeks and months, but um, but something that everybody can identify with for sure. You know, after you left Liverpool, you had a short stay at eighteen sixty Munich. Uh, what was the situation that happened there? Um, it was pretty widely reported. I think you know, I I went in um, great opportunity, great club, and and you know, fantastic support, great heritage, and I think what I. You know what I found, what what I was expecting when I went in there was all as expected. As I said, you know, great great organisation, but unfortunately there was a disparity between the two different sets of shareholders. There there is a fifty plus one rule in Germany over ownership, and and in reality that you know as I said right at the outset of this discussion, you know, having great ownership and and having a you know a supportive group. Um, is very it's vital not just important it's vital to success that didn't exist there and and for various reasons that I can't legally talk about it just you know it didn't it made it untenable for me personally so um, I took some legal advice and unfortunately resigned after about two months so um, that was disappointing because I you know very much looked at that in a similar way that I look at this which is I always felt that leaving Liverpool after 10 years of my own choice that you know the big Thing for me had to be wherever I went. If I if I indeed went back into soccer, had to be something different and challenging. And and Munich offered that on the face of it, and Nashville offers offers that obviously in in spades, really. You know, I've noticed you have no hesitation before saying the word soccer, so you're already ahead of the game here in some ways. Uh... Yeah, you know, I've I've lived I've lived and worked in many different countries, and I learned pretty early on that. The sooner you can get the the language sorted, the the better. So uh, yeah, I've been working on on some of the nuances, but uh, I'm sure I still get some of them wrong for a while. <laughs> I got to ask also, your old club Liverpool is playing in this week's Champions League final under manager Jurgen Klopp, who came in when you were at Liverpool. What are your thoughts right now about your old club? Uh, fantastic. You know, I I've been watching them this season. I've attended most of the games recently and. Um, I'll be at the final in Kiev. I, I fly back from here in uh, midweek and I'm going out to Kiev on Friday uh, with, with uh, my girlfriend, Karen. So hugely looking forward to that. I think, you know, uh, Jürgen has done a fantastic job, as of, you know, many people at Liverpool. And he's, a, he's you know, a great coach, easily, you know, uh, deserve, deserving of, of where they are. And, you know, I, I wish them great success obviously both as a fan and as a friend of Jürgen and everybody involved there so um, I'm hugely excited about the opportunity it's great to see them back in the in the Champions League and you know I think when we got back in last year and and you know people kind of raised their eyebrows Liverpool back in the Champions League and I don't think anyone could have predicted them reaching the final and um, also a great great team you know to play Real Madrid in the final just adds that you know the icing on the cake. Really, it's uh, you know be a 
really well for competition. I would say uh, in terms of performance, I'd say they're pretty even as teams right now at this time. So it'll make for a great final. And one thing for sure, there'll be lots of goals. I'm sure of that. Well, lots to look forward to this week. Lots to look forward to as Nashville comes into MLS. Ian Eyre, welcome to Soccer in America, and thanks for joining me. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Chris Ballard and Ian Eyre, as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Please, if you like the pod, tell your friends, subscribe, like, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. It really does help the cause if you do. And check out the 30-Minute Planet Football video show hosted by me and Luis Miguel at your garage on SITV. That's available on Amazon and Fubo TV. Recent guests include Juan Pablo Angel, Indy Cowie, and Jesse Marsh. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.